This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Spectrum Business works with small businesses nationwide, so we know that running your own business means doing it all. Marketing, sales, inventory, customer service, and more. Spectrum One for Business helps you keep it all connected for just $49.99 a month. Get fast, reliable internet, advanced Wi-Fi with security shield, and a free mobile line for one low price. Stay connected and do it all with Spectrum One for Business. Only $49.99 a month. Go to spectrum.com slash business to learn more. Restrictions apply. Services not available in all areas. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Former FIFA president Joao Avalanche sat high in the luxury seats of the Stade de France overlooking the 1998 World Cup final. He was surrounded by luminaries from the highest levels of international sports. Members of the International Olympic Committee, senior executives from international soccer clubs, and his son-in-law, Ricardo Teixeira, president of Brazil's Sports Confederation. On the field, France faced the defending champions from Brazil, Avalanche's home country. Ringing the stadium were the logos of the world's most prominent sports brands, the sponsors who had made Avalanche rich beyond his dreams. Avalanche's successor, Sepp Blatter, had been elected just one month earlier in June. Avalanche had served as president of the highest governing body of international soccer since 1974. After he retired, he'd received the honorary title President for Life. What a life it had been. Just four years earlier, Avalanche had watched Brazil win its fourth World Cup victory. Before that, as president of Brazil's Sports Confederation, he jetted around the globe with international soccer star Pelé. And before that, he'd been an athlete himself, competing in two different Olympic Games 16 years apart. Even Brazil's World Cup loss today in France couldn't bring him down from the rarefied air of extraordinary achievement. Joao Avalanche's life seemed to have been a series of peaks, each higher than the last. But he'd built his meteoric rise on a foundation of lies, corruption, and kickbacks. And not even his powerful reputation could prevent his eventual fall, caused by a scandal of his own making. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Each week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. 
You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Today, we began our look at former FIFA president Joao Avalanche, who turned international soccer into a global phenomenon and marketing juggernaut. Along the way, Avalanche personally enriched himself by taking millions of dollars in illicit bribes. This week, we'll explore Avalanche's rise from entitled Olympic athlete to one of the most powerful figures in sports. Next week, we'll cover the scandal that brought him down. Joao Avalanche lived to be 100, and almost until the very end, at the age of 96, he was still the honorary president of FIFA, the International Federation of Association Football. He'd competed in the Olympics, won a silver medal at the Pan American Games, and was a member of the International Olympic Committee, or IOC, for nearly half a century. He was also an accomplished lawyer, director of Brazil's National Bus Transportation Company, and later oversaw all of Brazil's sports during the rise of Pelé, one of history's most famous soccer players. But despite his many accomplishments, at the end of Avalanche's life, he was best known for soiling the sport of soccer by encouraging underhanded tactics and dishonest kickbacks. Joao Avalanche's experience with the darker side of humanity started from the time he was born. His father was an arms dealer, supplied primarily by Belgium-based F.N. Herstel. Herstel manufactured a variety of weapons, including the guns used in the 1914 assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria, which had plunged the world into war just two years before Avalanche's birth. Thanks to his father's career, Avalanche spent his early years in privilege. He attended classes at Rio's prestigious Lyceum French High School and later joined his father's company. But by that time, the business had taken a turn for the worse. His father was under enormous stress and suffered a fatal heart attack when Avalanche was only 18. The event cemented a key tenet of Avalanche's worldview. He believed the state should have done more for his father's faltering business, but the government had failed to act when Avalanche Sr. needed it most. Joao decided then and there that he'd make his own way in the world. He would never again expect someone else to help him and he'd bend any rule he had to in order to get what he wanted. Avalanche aimed to shoot to the top as quickly as possible. He went on to attend law school at Rio de Janeiro's prestigious Fluminense Federal University alongside the privileged offspring of other Brazilian elites. But before embarking on a legal career, he was determined to become a successful athlete. Like many other Brazilians, Avalanche played soccer, but he wasn't talented enough to go pro. However, he did excel at another sport, swimming. The water suited Avalanche, and he was good enough to make Brazil's Olympic team at 20 years old. He competed in the 400 and 1500 meter freestyle events at the 1936 Games in Berlin. Although he failed to medal, he gained national recognition as a Brazilian and South American champion. Soon he was playing water polo for his local club Botafogo and also Sao Paulo's Esperia. These were exclusive sports clubs, the domains of high-achieving athletes from privileged families. 
There were also Avalanche's introduction to a world of prominent sports executives. These influential people would become critically important to his future success. In 1937, at only 21 years old, Avalanche leveraged his athletic skill to take on greater responsibilities at the sports clubs. He acted as treasurer of Buttafogo and later as director of Asperia. The work helped him grow his network of prominent associates, and he had no compunctions about using those connections to push his career further. That kind of I'll-scratch-your-back-if-you-scratch-mine philosophy became his go-to strategy. Like his father, Avalanche found an opportunity in armed conflict. When Brazil declared war on Germany in 1942, it became difficult for Axis powers, Germany, Italy, and Japan, to do business in Brazil. At that time, Brazil's largest public transport company was run by two native Italians. Avalanche convinced them to take him on as the front-facing manager of their business. This allowed them to keep lower profiles and avoid negative press. Avalanche managed the company for the duration of the war and was asked to stay on after its conclusion in 1945. Following the conflict, Brazil nationalized many industries and was desperate to improve its transportation system. Thanks to his connections and a bit of luck, Avalanche found himself in charge of a giant public transport company and in a powerful government position. But even with this enormous responsibility, Avalanche never abandoned his love of sport. The 34-year-old continued to compete in the pool, winning a silver medal at the 1951 Pan American Games with Brazil's water polo team. Incredibly, he then participated in his second Olympics, again as a member of Brazil's water polo team at the 1952 Games in Helsinki, 16 years after competing in Berlin. Thanks to the national recognition he earned from his athleticism, Avalanche finagled his way into becoming president of Sao Paulo's Swimming Association. He used his influence there to help a friend, Silvio Pacheco, obtain a seat on Brazil's Sports Confederation, which oversaw many of Brazil's sports. Pacheco returned the favor in 1954 by making Avalanche national director of water sports. This was typical of the kind of cronyism that was Avalanche's practice in business dealings. In his view, the world ran on favors and reciprocity, and the spoils belonged to those who could take advantage of their connections. Using his appointment as director of water sports as a springboard, Avalanche became a founding member of Brazil's Olympic Committee in 1955. In this role, he helped to groom elite athletes and create a framework for sports administration. The committee also selected potential cities to host the Olympic Games. As Avalanche would later come to learn, and profit from, not all those bids were won on merit. Avalanche, now 40, headed up Brazil's delegation to the 1956 Olympics in Melbourne. He soon found himself surrounded by powerful international figures in business, politics, and sports administrations. That was the first time Avalanche got a real taste of how much power these governing bodies had. In the book, Dishonored Games, Corruption, Money, and Greed at the Olympics, its authors described how sport represents one of the modern world's most magnificent vehicles for the undisputed exercise of pure, unalloyed, blatant, stark naked power. And that power had a dark side. While Avalanche enjoyed his view from the top, other factions were dealing in dirty business down in the trenches. 
During the Melbourne Games, Horst Dossler, heir to the powerful Adidas brand, was bribing Australian dockhands to keep out rival goods. This allowed him to flood the Olympics with his own products, making a killing for the family business. Avalanche became close friends with Dossler. Both were ambitious and came from privileged backgrounds. They were similarly entitled. They used their network of connections without second thoughts and saw no reason why they shouldn't benefit personally from their positions. Both were also visionaries who could see the coming expansion of professional athletics on a global scale. The Olympics offered a variety of sports to an international audience, but only once every four years. One sport that truly enjoyed year-round international appeal was soccer, or as it's more commonly known around the world, football. Water sports were one thing, but Avalanche wanted the power and prestige that came with soccer. So in 1956, shortly after Melbourne, he got himself appointed as vice president to the Brazilian Sports Confederation. This gave him the power to oversee 22 amateur sports along with the Brazilian national soccer team. Almost immediately, he began campaigning for the presidency of the confederation and the added authority that came with it. As a former national swimming champion who'd competed in two Olympics, Avalanche was enormously popular and well-connected. With a charismatic and commanding presence, there seemed to be nothing he couldn't accomplish. 42-year-old Avalanche won the 1958 election in a landslide. From there, he'd continue his spectacular rise in the world of sport. Just five years later, he earned a seat on the International Olympic Committee, a position he'd hold for the next 48 years. But it still wasn't enough. He had his eyes on an even more illustrious position, president of FIFA. But to get elected, he'd have to use every dirty trick in his playbook. Coming up, the world's most famous player puts Brazilian soccer on the map and funnels more power into Avalanche's hands. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back to the story. In 1958, shortly after Joao Avalanche's election as president of the Brazilian Sports Confederation, Brazil won its first World Cup. The team featured a budding 17-year-old superstar named Pelé, who led Brazil to a 5-2 victory in the final. With Pelé at the helm, Brazil won the World Cup again in 1962 and in 1970. By this time, Pelé was more than just a national hero. As the greatest player in what he called the beautiful game, he was a global icon. And soon, Joao Avalanche's patsy. Now in his early 50s, 
Avalanche had lived an extraordinary public life as his fortunes rose alongside Brazilian sports. He boasted a resume most men would envy. Prominent lawyer and international businessman, former Olympic and world champion, member of the International Olympic Committee, and president of Brazil's Sports Confederation. He was also a proud family man. His daughter, Lucia, had recently married a young Brazilian law student, Ricardo Teixeira. Although his new son-in-law had no sports experience, he did have a powerful father-in-law who believed in entitlement and nepotism. Avalanche sent Teixeira to study in Zurich and New York, the first time Teixeira had traveled outside the country. Over the next decade, Avalanche groomed him as his protege in Brazilian soccer management. This wasn't quite the altruism of a mentor. Avalanche knew his own ambitions would ultimately carry him far from Brazil's sports federation. Placing Teixeira there would allow Avalanche to maintain some degree of control in his absence. With Teixeira firmly established at the Brazilian Sports Federation, 55-year-old Avalanche launched a bid to become president of FIFA in 1971. Leading the governing body of international soccer was a highly coveted position, and Avalanche had stiff competition, but three World Cups in a dozen years had garnered him significant capital. Well ahead of the next election, the South American Football Confederation nominated him as their candidate. However, the chance of victory was slim, even for the respected and charismatic Avalanche. Since FIFA's inception in 1904, all eight elected or acting presidents had come from Western Europe. Avalanche also faced criticism from soccer purists for not having played the game himself. And he faced a formidable opponent, current FIFA president Sir Stanley Rouse. By 1974, Rouse had been president for nearly 13 years, the second longest tenure in the organization's 70-year history. The British citizen enjoyed a sterling reputation in the sports world. In fact, he had been knighted for his work on behalf of the London Games in 1948, the first Olympics since the outbreak of World War II. On the one hand, to the genteel English incumbent, it was just business. Rouse just thought Avalanche would be bad for FIFA. But on the other hand, it was also very personal. Rouse had approached Avalanche when he first heard the South American Football Confederation was considering his candidacy. Rouse insisted that Avalanche had told him he wasn't running. Avalanche denied the incident ever happened. Essentially, both men were calling each other liars, and things got heated. As president, Rouse unabashedly favored tradition, meaning he favored Europe at the expense of other continents. Many of his backers felt the same way. United European Football Association president Artemio Franchi, an Italian, declared that if Avalanche won the election, Europe might break away from FIFA and create its own federation. But Avalanche knew he could court the votes of Asian, African, Caribbean, and South American soccer federations. Accustomed to being treated as second class by FIFA's Eurocentric executives, this was their chance to consolidate power for themselves. Avalanche promised them greater roles in FIFA's governing, money for infrastructure, and the expansion of the World Cup from 16 teams to 24. Expansion meant voting rights for those eight new territories. It would also mean diminished European power. In 1972, Avalanche invited teams from 20 countries to Brazil, all costs covered, to play in a soccer tournament of his own making. 
It was known as the Brazil Independence Cup and had no connection to FIFA. His calculated outreach to these underserved members was smart. And he had a powerful PR weapon, Pelé. Avalanche embarked on a two-year campaign that took him to more than 80 countries, often with Pelé by his side. It was a brilliant maneuver. Even if the local federations weren't interested in what Avalanche had to say, they certainly wanted to see the sport's greatest ambassador in the flesh. Avalanche was meticulous. He took pictures of every important executive he met, explaining later, I cannot run the risk of meeting them tomorrow in London, Paris, or any other place and not remembering his or her name. If I do not say hello, I will have an enemy. Avalanche's savvy electioneering impressed Adidas head Horst Dossler. Like Avalanche, Dossler understood the enormous profit potential of the world's most popular sport. And Avalanche's plans for expansion from 16 teams to 24 meant increasing its market penetration by 50%. Dossler had spent decades cultivating relationships with the heads of international sports institutions. Although he initially supported Rouse's re-election, he switched allegiances to back Avalanche. Dossler started leveraging his own connections. He had established relationships with several powerful French sports officials. Jean Sadour, president of the French Professional League, broke with his fellow Europeans to support Avalanche, and it was likely at Dossler's urging. When it came time to vote, Avalanche called in more favors from his network of powerful friends. He convinced one associate, a senior Lufthansa executive, to provide free plane tickets for many of the poorer African delegates to attend the vote. Some accused Avalanche of buying votes by giving the African delegates cash bribes. Whether true or not, he did spend enormous sums of money traveling and doling out promises of economic boons to come, money for infrastructure, voting rights, and greater control of their destinies in a more democratic FIFA. The gambit resulted in a huge payoff for Avalanche. He defeated Rouse by a vote of 68 to 52. It was the moment that modern FIFA was born. He never faced a challenge to his presidency afterward. No one would oppose him for 24 years. Avalanche's hard-won international power as president of FIFA came at a price. He would have to relinquish his position as president of Brazil's sports federation. But with his son-in-law, Ricardo Teixeira, in a high-ranking position there, Avalanche retained his influence, just as he'd planned. Once he was elected, Avalanche embarked on a daunting mission. He knew that television, via live satellite transmission, would be the key to unlocking the enormous untapped wealth of the world's most dominant sport. Reaching a worldwide audience would attract multinational sponsors. Under a traditionalist like Rouse, Expanding TV rights hadn't been a priority. The World Cup had only recently broadcast to an American audience. Even then, it was a low priority. CBS, the rights holders to the most recent finals in West Germany, only carried the BBC feed. In the short term, Avalanche needed to secure sponsorship dollars to stay afloat. At that time, FIFA wasn't turning a profit from its events, so Avalanche worked to secure sponsorship from Coca-Cola. Then he turned his sights to another sports leader who would change everything for FIFA. Avalanche approached his old ally, Adidas head Horst Dossler, for support. With the shoe brand's backing and an agreement from Coca-Cola to underwrite FIFA's $8 million expenses for the 1978 Argentina World Cup, 
the equivalent of more than $30 million today, the scope of the game had changed. Like Avalanche, Dossler saw the profit potential of televised soccer across worldwide markets. Sponsorship checks were written, and broadcast rights were sold around the world for a profit. As president, Avalanche continued to grant worldwide rights to FIFA's World Cup to Dossler, who then sold those rights downstream to TV and radio broadcast networks. As those rights became more lucrative, Dossler shut out competitors by kicking back enormous sums to Avalanche in return for preferential treatment. Everyone was happy, if not downright giddy, over the scheme. Soon, it was an enormous marketing empire. In 1982, the same year FIFA expanded its roster of World Cup teams from 16 to 24, Dossler formed International Sports and Leisure. It would soon become known as ISL, the most influential sports marketing agency of its time. It might be hard to imagine today, in a world where logos and merchandising, $100 million contracts and billion dollar stadiums are commonplace, but as recently as the 1980s, sports marketing wasn't the behemoth it is today. ISL is one of the entities that changed all that. The venture certainly hit the ground running. With the expanded field of 24 teams, international interest in the World Cup had grown. Both the U.S. and Canada expressed their interest in hosting the 1986 event. But Avalanche supported a bid by Mexico instead. FIFA Vice President Guillermo Cañedo, a Mexican media baron and close associate of Avalanche, brokered a profitable global TV agreement with ISL. In a show of solidarity to Avalanche, every FIFA member voted in support of Mexico. By expanding soccer's reach around the globe, FIFA had reinvented itself as a highly profitable business. By 1987, the European TV rights to the next three World Cups were sold for $440 million. The non-U.S. rights for the three tournaments, beginning with 1998, would go for an astounding $2.2 billion. With so much money at stake and so little oversight, corruption was bound to happen on an unimaginably gigantic scale. When we come back, Avalanche's golden years at FIFA's helm are tarnished by scandal. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now, back to the story. By the late 1980s, FIFA president Joao Avalanche had initiated a period of unprecedented change for international soccer. After a lifetime of achievement, Avalanche was still working into his 70s. He led the game into a lucrative future of global marketing and dizzying commercial heights. 
And he'd done so with the shrewd business savvy of Horst Dossler, former head of Adidas and founder of the sports marketing agency ISL. Both FIFA and ISL were headquartered in Switzerland, and not by coincidence. All those stories you hear about secret Swiss bank accounts, there's a reason for it. Switzerland's lax tax laws and non-disclosure practices made it a haven for organizations like FIFA. Despite generating enormous revenue as a governing sports body, FIFA paid a far lower tax bill than private sector corporations. In fact, more than 67 sports organizations have headquarters in Switzerland, contributing more than $1 billion annually to the Swiss economy. The degree of secrecy legally permitted by Switzerland's banking and tax laws encouraged large-scale tax avoidance. Those financial loopholes, combined with FIFA's soaring revenue and lack of oversight, created a perfect storm for corruption. Of course, it was helped along all the more by Avalanche's overwhelming sense of entitlement. Yet the first allegations of kickbacks against Avalanche weren't attributed to his position at FIFA, but to his membership in the International Olympic Committee, a position he'd held for decades. In 1996, British journalist Andrew Jennings wrote The New Lords of the Rings, Olympic Corruption and How to Buy Gold Medals. Among its revelations were allegations of bribes to IOC officials, including Avalanche, from countries seeking to host the Olympics. Jennings argued that because members of the IOC were appointed instead of elected, they multiplied their own opportunities for corruption. He went on to declare, particularly in the 1980s, their ranks were stuffed with men long overdue for investigation. But neither Switzerland, famous for its blind spot for financial indiscretion, nor the IOC, which didn't want to tarnish its reputation, had any intention of pursuing the allegations. The accusations against Avalanche were never fully investigated and the matter blew over. Any man dodging that bullet, and the ones that came before it, might have come to think of himself as impervious. And Avalanche, never a modest man, began to display his arrogance worse than ever before. He sometimes closed meetings by simply leaving the room without saying a word. In a minor dispute regarding FIFA appointments, he once ended the discussion by handing out his list of new committee members, then declaring it passed without a vote. Just two years shy of his 80th birthday, Avalanche had been president of the organization for 20 years, the second longest serving president in FIFA's history. And as far as he was concerned, he'd keep the office for as long as he wanted. By all accounts, it looked like Avalanche really did have ultimate power. The 1994 World Cup should have been another feather in the 80-year-old's cap. The first to be hosted by the United States, it was the most financially successful World Cup to date, setting attendance records that still stand. But the road to America was bumpy. Retired from his playing days, soccer legend Pelé had formed his own company and was eager to acquire the Brazilian domestic rights to the first World Cup played in the United States. Although his group bid $5 million, the rights were awarded to the Globo and Bondurantes networks for only $4 million. Pelé charged that he lost the bid because he refused to pay a $1 million kickback to Brazilian Football Confederation President Ricardo Teixeira, Avalanche's son-in-law. In response, Teixeira sued Pelé for defamation, and Avalanche threatened to declare Pelé persona non grata with FIFA, essentially banishing him from the sport. 
Avalanche went as far as to ban Pelé from the World Cup draw in Las Vegas. For the Brazilian-born president of FIFA to exclude Brazil's most famous son, and likely the only soccer star Americans had ever heard of, was a foolish act and was widely criticized. However, it failed to break the Brazilian national team's spirit. At the 1994 finals, Brazil won its fourth World Cup, beating Italy in front of 94,000 international fans at California's famed Rose Bowl Stadium. But this stunning achievement was soon marred by scandal. The Brazilian team returned home on a private jet to a hero's welcome, but Ricardo Teixeira refused to pass through customs. Along with the complexities of sports administration he'd learned from his father-in-law, he'd also picked up churlish entitlement. He argued that a title of the Brazilian team is worth much more than custom taxes. It was soon discovered that their plane carried 17 tons of undeclared baggage. Players had bought expensive items like computers and appliances that were more costly in Brazil for their personal use and as gifts for others. One of the players reportedly bought an entire kitchen. Teixeira himself brought back a beer-making machine and high-end bar glasses for his club in Rio. After the bust made national news, Teixeira denied doing anything wrong and was completely unrepentant. Later prosecuted by the federal government, Teixeira was forced to pay taxes and fines on the contraband. In his zeal to profit from his position and elude taxes, Teixeira had risked his entire empire. His ability to continue as head of Brazil's World Cup organizing committee was in jeopardy. It was clearer than ever that he'd only earned his prominence thanks to his father-in-law, rather than any innate ability. And yet, Teixeira was conniving enough to hold on to power once he got it. Even when Teixeira and Avalanche's daughter, Lucia, divorced, Teixeira held his position. He knew Avalanche had invested too much in grooming him for the future. And Avalanche knew his son-in-law's power would grow. In a magazine interview, he told a reporter, if you had to define cunning in the best sense of the word, it'd be Ricardo Teixeira. Despite the family turmoil and his still public feud with Pelé, Avalanche managed to win a sixth term as FIFA president. His success was simply impossible to overlook. He'd turned FIFA into a sports juggernaut, second only to the Olympics in international sports. He championed women's soccer, staging the first Women's World Cup in 1991, even before it became an Olympic event in 1996. By 1998, the organization had more members than the UN. And in 1998, the World Cup expanded again, this time to 32 teams, twice the number of countries that had participated when Avalanche assumed the presidency in 1974. Meanwhile, the pipeline of money to FIFA and ISL continued to flow unabated. In 1996, the ISL agency bought the combined rights to the 2002 and 2006 World Cup Finals for nearly $2 billion. But eventually, Avalanche had to call it quits. In 1998, secure in his legacy, the 82-year-old relinquished the presidency, anointing his successor in a contested election that reeked of corruption. The new president, Sepp Blatter, created a new lifelong title for Avalanche, Honorary President. With it came many of the lavish benefits he enjoyed during his presidency, including a car and chauffeur, 
and a rich annual salary. But despite all the perks, all was not well in Avalanche's kingdom. ISL went bankrupt in 2001, leaving debts of nearly $200 million. A Swiss court was convened to investigate the collapse and the whereabouts of millions of missing dollars. The trail led directly to FIFA. A former ISL executive testified that the company became a private source of money for FIFA, virtually their private bank. Indictments were coming for fraud, forgery of public documents, tax evasion, and money laundering. Among the most damning allegations, that Avalanche and Teixeira had, between them, accepted bribes from ISL totaling as much as $50 million. The visionary who'd helped build soccer into a billion-dollar sport had reached too far and flown too high and was about to come crashing down to Earth. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of Joao Avalanche's story. We'll follow the fallout of the ISL investigation and the ripple of consequences. You can find more episodes of Sports Criminals and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals like Sports Criminals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Ken Pisani, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Royd.